part of the reason why we, it's so important for us to gather and worship is we need just to be reminded week in and week out that all the things we experience outside of our time together, for as challenging as those are, the, we need to be reminded of the real truth that there's a living God who's active and at work and having his way inside of us and through us. And one of my favorite passages of scripture that reminds me of both, uh, it strengthens me, but also reminds me of the strength that's inside of me is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, it says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. I love that. This all-surpassing power is from God, not from us, and we are hard-pressed on every side. And I don't know about you, if you're, if you're a gardener, if you've ever moved pots, but ceramic pots, um, you cannot hard-press them on every side. In fact, the slightest little thing will cause them to break. Here's a picture of a pot that was uh, hard-pressed, perplexed, and was crushed. Right? Good for nothing at this point. And, uh, and so what does this mean? Because when, when, when Paul talks about that we are these treasures in jars of clay, and jars of clay are these fragile, fragile vessels that can barely hold anything. And yet he's saying, no, we have this all-surpassing power inside of us. And Paul was onto something that's become a relatively new term, but he was the original anti-fragile person. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term, but I think it's this incredible thing. Anti-fragile, it means when something, when, when there's stress, uh, what it does is it actually causes you to be stronger than before. Here's a, here's a helpful little graph about what it means to be anti-fragile. So there's, right, there's a strength and there's a stress, and at some point there's a breaking point. And if you're fragile like a pot, you just crumble. At that point, you are no longer good for anything. If you're resilient like plastic, right, you, 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 you live to fight another day, but you kind of get deteriorated over time. But being anti-fragile means all that stress, all that pressure, all those things that weigh on you actually make you stronger. Like our bones are like that, right? When, when astronauts go into space, they actually lose bone density because there's not enough stress on the bones to keep them strong. And we, as the people of God, from the very beginning, have been anti-fragile people. We have been people that have to live in this world. But the world is not going to crush us. The world's not even going to make us resilient so that we can just gird up and find a way to make through. But the people of God have been compelled to be bold, to have this Holy Spirit power inside of us that strengthens us and causes us to be anti-fragile. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage of scripture uh, that tells the story of how the world do we go from really challenging moments and seasons that are hard to becoming these anti-fragile vessels of the Holy Spirit that give testimony to the glory and greatness of God. So if you have a Bible, um, you need to turn uh, with me to Joel um, chapter 1. And the, this is the Many of us have Bibles, not many of us. Some of you old school people would mark up your Bibles and be super great, like this is Ephesians maybe, right? We're going to the clean part of the Bible. This is Joel. This is the minor prophets. This is the part that you don't get to very often. So in your Bible or on your, um, on your phone, why don't you turn to Joel? Because we're going to spend the rest of the morning walking through the book of Joel. All right. So here we are. Joel begins like this. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Petuel. I have practiced all day. My Hebrew doesn't even matter. But here's the deal. No one even knows who these two guys are, which I'll tell you about in a second. So it goes on and says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? 
tell it to your children and let your children's children tell it to their children and their children tell it to their grandchildren. And what are they going to tell them? What the locust swarm had eaten, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the older locusts have eaten. Basically, this is what happened. There was this giant plague of locusts that came in and crushed the land. But before we talk about that, what's interesting about the book of Joel, as I was doing some study this week, is nobody really knows who Joel was. No one knows who his father was. Now, some people think, oh, because he was so famous back in the day, they didn't have to like, give any context. Like if you're wandering around Marine, you're like, you know, Ben Kearns. You're like, oh, totally. But as time happened further and further, um, no one knows who he is. And they didn't know, is this an early book or was this a late book? But part of the reason why all the scholars that I read, they said it doesn't matter is because Joel tells this incredible story. It's kind of the archetype of the stories of scripture, right? So what it, this idea that there have been and that there are and that there will always be locusts. The people who put together the Bible realize that the way that the story of God works is that there are always going to be seasons of locusts. And those locusts are going to destroy the crops, they're going to destroy the land, and there are and there continue to will be. And what's interesting is the people of God have looked back on Joel and they've seen these swarm of locusts. What that meant was actual locusts coming and destroying the crops, destroying the orchards, actually causing devastation for that year and for the years to come. It's also meant different tribes that they've interacted with or the conquering nations, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or the Romans. And so when the people of God read the book of Joel, they said, oh, those weren't locusts. Those are the Assyrians who have come in and wiped out us. And not only wiped us out in that year, but the devastation has continued to do that. All the way for us, right, this last year, the whole last year of COVID, right, a second prom, a second graduation, a second Mother's Day, right? You think this is a year that's kind of been wiped away. People's finances have been hit. Um, people's relationships have really struggled. And what happens is you give your whole heart to a job, you give your whole heart to a relationship, and it's devastated and it's gone. And so the question is, what in the world are we going to do? What is God's restoration plan for these lost years? Because there is this understanding that there is a lost year. This devastation seasons happen, and we are not immune to them. I wish we were. I wish those of us who are God's favorite kids would be immune to the years of devastation, but we're not. These years of devastation happen, and then what is the plan for God's people to move forward? Well, as we'll see through the book of Joel, that restoration is a timeless biblical truth. I love this series that we're in, and because that is really the hope of the gospel. It's not that you're going to be perfect. It's not that life is going to be great. It's that God restores broken things. We are not fragile. We are not even resilient. We are anti-fragile people. We are people that the Holy Spirit longs to restore us and to renew us and to use us in a new way. And so here we are, let's, take, let's continue back in the book of Joel, and we're going to start, and the chapter 2 basically walks us through this important biblical truth of the process of restoration. So it begins chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpets of Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand. Now for Old Testament people, when they said the day of the Lord was coming, that was no joke, that was the Lord's judgment. And so throughout scripture, there's kind of a couple different themes that happen. When the years of devastation happen, there's a couple different frames. This particular frame is the frame of judgment, that God had something to teach these people, these hard-headed people of Israel, right? And so there was judgment, and that judgment was going to be crushing these crops to teach them a lesson. Sometimes there's, it's a discipline. God actually, because we are his beloved children, 
He doesn't want us to be wild and spoiled brats. And so there's ways that, that there's pressure points or challenging things that God puts on us that are used to, dis, uh, to, dis, to, sorry, to discipline us. Sometimes we are just simply the, the, you know, we get the backsplash of a broken world of brokenness, of sin, of somebody else's sin, of an oppressive system, right? We get the backsplash. There's nothing that we have done, but the backsplash of somebody else's awfulness impacts us in our life. And sometimes it's just our own sin and our own devastation. And so when we experience these seasons of challenge, these lost years, right, we have to first recognize God is doing something. Because if we just experience those and we put our head in the sand or we misunderstand what's happening or we, don't, we choose to cope in a different way, then we miss out on all that God has for us. And so we need to figure out, gosh, is this judgment? Is this discipline? Is it somebody else's sin? Is it my sin? That's the very first thing we need to do. Because once we understand what God's doing, we, turn, we tune our attention and we let that trial be a God-centered trial. We now have a God-centered plan through it. So here's the second thing we need to do. So the first part is understanding what it is. In this case, it's judgment. The second thing is then we repent. We turn our hearts, we turn our minds back towards God. In verse 12, it says this, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been busted, I mean, it's weird. We live in a world where we can justify anything all the time. And it's really rare for us to really get busted and actually own it which is actually a discipline we should grow in. But if you've ever really been busted, if you know it was your fault that something awful happened to somebody else, right? There's a weeping, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a heaviness, and it's natural to want to find some way to make it right. Verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And I love this term, it's, the natural response is like we tear our garments. We want some outward expression of, look at, I'm so sorry. Our teenage kids do this all the time. Sorry, mom. Like, like I'm sorry. We, we tear our clothes. But God wants us to rend our hearts. True repentance is us humbly going, oh, God, I have messed up. I have wronged you. I've, wrong, I've been wrong and somehow in this situation. So we recognize that in this case there is judgment. But then the second thing, if we want to become these anti-fragile people, we have to understand that there is repentance. And then after repentance, then there is this process of restoration. Down in verse 25, it says this, right? So after the locusts have destroyed the crops, and not only crops for that year, but ended up devastating them, the ripples of that for years to come. Finally, the Lord says this, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts of the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, you now will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Gosh, what a beautiful picture that in the midst of this devastation, there, God does not see us. He sees us and he recognizes that we have needs, physical, emotional, spiritual. And God says, you know what? I'm going to repay you for those lost years. Those things that happen to you are not lost forever. That I see you, I care about you, and I will restore those last years. And then what's incredible is after this part of restoration is that God actually wants to do a new thing. The person that you are after the devastation is actually a different person. We're not resilient people. We're not just a, a more bruised version of ourselves. We are these incredible new people, right, who are anti-fragile. And this is what, where Joel says is the new thing. 
In verse 28, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I love this because this is the new thing that God longs to do. He, he prophesied that it would happen, and we are now beginning to taste some of that because we live in a world where we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Old men, old women, young women, young men experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and all people, no matter your ethnic affiliation like back in the Old Testament, all people, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the restorative story that Joel in one chapter walks us through. But this is the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of the New Testament. This is the story of our church day in and day out, over and over and over again. Well, we have to, if, the idea is if we're going to play the long game here, we have to recognize that this is an eternal perspective. And we're not used to doing this. We want the here and now. We want it to be solved right now. And if we experience hard things in our life, we just want to pull the ejection handle. Now, midlife is coming up on me really hard. The other day I went and got my hair cut. And I swear the lady who cut my hair spent more time on my ears and eyebrows than she did on the rest of my hair. Like, this is an awful transition that's happening to me. I went shopping for shoes and white New Balance sneakers looked attractive to me. I'm like, oh, those are actually kind of comfortable. And, and then I knew I was in big trouble because I'm flipping through the channel and all of a sudden I find myself watching the History Channel for like an hour or two at a time. I'm like, it, it's over for me. Well, I was watching the History Channel, and, uh, and I came across uh, the story of the Battle of the Bulge. And I don't know if you've, he you've heard that story. In fact, I just learned the bulge is not a place. The bulge is what the front line looked like. It looked like a herniated disc or something, right? But this is the Battle of the Bulge. So this is found uh, six months after D-Day. So June 6, 1944, right, all the Allies land on the beaches of Normandy and, uh, and through incredible sacrifice begin to push the German armies back. And the, the, the whole tie of the war is changing. The Allies are on the, the, the offensive. The Germans are on the retreat. And the Battle of the Bulge was the time the Germans said, listen, we need, this is our last stand. And so they put all their effort into this battle. And it was their last stand for Germany and for the Allies. This was their big push to, to knock out Germany. And it was this giant battle in the winter of 1944, from December to January 1944. And 80,000 Allied troops died, 100,000 uh, German troops died. And I thought about this because I thought, how different are the people of World War II, World War I, really all of human history, than they are for us? Because I think in my pragmatic mind, if I'm a German, the war's lost. Why am I going to go and sacrifice myself? I'm, I'm surrendering right away. If I'm an ally, I'm thinking, I don't want to go and die. Like, why can't we just bomb them and wait for it to be over, right? We, like, the idea of sacrifice for something bigger than us is not part of our cultural dynamic. But it was that, it's been the human dynamic forever and ever that you would sacrifice for something bigger than yourself. And it's actually something I think God might be inviting his people to, to deal with, that we actually are people that are called to a much bigger story. And the story of God cannot be about just me, about just my joys, about just my sorrows, about God making everything better for me. And unfortunately, because of our cultural context, our spirituality is kind of summed up in that way. But if, it, if everything is about me, then we're going to miss out on what God actually wants to do in all of human history. We are just simply uh, doorkeepers in the kingdom of God. 
right? We're, we're cupbearers in the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom. This is God's story. This is God's gigantic ark. And God's restoration actually doesn't have anything to do with me. It has to do with the restoration of the entire world, the new heaven and the new earth. What I love is when you think of, of this idea of restoration in the big ark, I love the book of Revelation because Revelation is the picture that we get at the end, right? Revelation 7 says, at some point, every tongue, every tribe, every nation is going to come and gather around the throne room of God and is going to worship Jesus. That is the thing that we're ending towards. Revelation 21, right, says at some point, right, at the very end, God's going to make all wrongs, right? He's going to be our God. He's going to wipe away every tear. That is a thing that we long for. But in these years of, des- of destitute, in these years of, of um, where the locusts have eaten, right, so, some people are not going to experience that full restoration until they get to be with Jesus in eternity. And in our culture, we just think, oh, the by and by means we don't have any responsibility now. But that is not true. But we've gone so the other way that we forget that the eternal perspective matters, that the big picture does matter, that being ultimately in the new Jerusalem with Christ with every tribe and every tongue where God wipes away all of our tears and wrongs all of our rights, that is a true reality that should motivate us, that builds our strength, that when we are in the middle of times of challenge and times of suffering, that we actually have the fortitude to be God's people in this moment. Because if all of God's people just, (laughs) sorry, I keep wanting to say crap the bed, but I just said it because it just came out of my mouth. I, the worst was even in my head. But if we're just people, we just freak out. We cannot be God's people. We cannot be the people that God needs. We are the salt. We are the light. We're the fragrance of Christ. And if we are the ones waiting for God to fix us before we're willing to be a blessing to the world, we have missed it. So we need to have this eternal perspective. I'm sorry. You can email me, and I'm really sorry about that. You know, those mental glitches. I thought it was my mom's birthday. Okay. Okay, but here's the cool thing. It is a big story. And if that was enough, if it was like, hey, your suffering doesn't matter, your suffering, you just got to get through because you're God's people, because at the end, it's all going to be okay. Even if that was the end of the story, praise God that he sees us and he longs for us to be part of that whole story. But because of God's goodness, because of God's grace, because of God's kindness, this idea of restoration is not just for the by and by. It's not just for the end of all things. God actually longs to restore us here and now. See, because of God's grace, because of his mercy, whatever challenge you've walked through, whatever way the world has been pressing on you, whether it's your fault or somebody else's, God longs to see you in this actual moment. God longs to actually have you experience healing and transformation and restoration. I'm so excited because the last couple of weeks of this series are all about how God actually wants to restore our hearts, to restore our relationships. Because part of our testimony to the world is the healing work that God is going to do in us and through us. We spent the whole first part of the pandemic looking through Romans chapter 5, right, where it says that suffering produces perseverance, produce, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And so this idea of judgment and repentance and restoration and this new thing, this is exactly what God is inviting you and inviting me to be about, to be a part of. We do need to grow in our cultural competencies and and, in our eternal world perspective to know that this is a momentary blip. The most awful things are still a momentary blip. And it is a discipline to grow our character, to have an eternal perspective on all the things Because when we have that perspective, we can actually sit 
and be all that God has for us right now. But in our own devotional life, in our own life as among a church here, we need to do the work to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way with us, to restore the lost years. And what I love is for anyone who's walked through challenging things, you know that on the backside of it, you are a deeper, wiser, more whole person because of these challenges if you've allowed the Holy Spirit to have your way with you. I think one of the challenging weeks for people is the week that they get diagnosed with cancer, but they don't know what kind of cancer and they don't have a plan, right? Or there's a lump, right? There's, there's a mystery. They don't know what it is and it freaks people out and they think, how in the world am I ever gonna walk through this? And then the people who walk through cancer, who walk through that process, you see the inner strength that God has given all human beings because of natural grace and because he's given Christians because who have leaned into grace to go, oh my goodness, I now have the strength to walk through this, to look at the challenges in front of me and see what God has. And they are new and deeper people and the ministry that they have to the people around them are incredible. And that is because of the years the locusts have eaten. And then finally, we here at Marin Covenant Church, this is our ministry posture. We have a posture to the world that wants the world to understand that there is restoration, that there is hope, and that there is healing, that all of the challenges of this context that people are experiencing is not the beginning or the end of the story. It is just the world in which we live in, and as the people of God, we get to tell them about the good news of Christ, who longs to heal them, who longs to restore them, and longs to do a brand new thing in them. Well, I want to wrap up my time. I want to, with the same way I began, which is this passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4 paints this picture that we are these treasures in jars of clay. We are not fragile. We are not resilient. But because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because of our restoration, we have an eternal perspective, but we also get the ministry of God's grace right now as well. This is Romans chapter 7, says, Romans chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And I love the way that Paul wraps up this section in verse 16. He says this, Therefore, we do not lose hope. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Let me read that one more time. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are being wasted away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes on what is seen. Sorry, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so may God bless you as we recognize this is a lost year. The ripples of this are gonna be felt four years. But that is not the end of the story. We fix our eyes on Christ, our living hope, the restorer of our souls so we can give him all the honor and glory both through this life and the life to come. Let's stand as we continue to worship.